following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. There'll be a lot of echoes from Leviticus 18, and I'll explain that when we get to it. But just to to kind of put you in the, 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 the shoes or the sandals of the Israelites... Um, it's a long section of scripture, but actually, chronologically, it's fairly compact for the Israelites. A lot of this stuff happened very quickly for them. And so they've come out of Egypt. They've been rescued by blood and by power, by Yahweh. He has brought them out. He has conquered the gods of Egypt. And he's brought them out to Mount Sinai in fulfillment of the promise to Moses. And they come out to Mount Sinai and God himself in a powerful theophany comes down on Mount Sinai and rips the mountain apart and says to the Israelites, I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He goes on through the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites are scared to death by this and their comment to Moses is, you go talk to Yahweh. We don't want him to talk to us directly. And Moses says, it's okay, don't be afraid, God did this to scare you. It's really like that in the text. To, so that you would not sin. It is the, the powerful, holy presence of God that was designed, the theophany was designed to scare them so that they don't sin. And so Moses goes up onto the mount and he receives further instructions beyond the ten words that were given from Mount Sinai. He gives more to Moses. But while he's up there, the Israelites craft false gods. And so they make these gods, and they're worshiping these gods, and Moses comes down from his, his time with God, 40 days up there, receiving the, the, the Decalogue and the rest of the law. And as he's coming down, he sees that the Israelites have already broken out. And they're worshiping false gods, and they're bringing shame on themselves, among the nations around them, and also shame on the name of Yahweh. And Noah, or Noah I'll do that. So just if I say Noah, I mean Moses. And if I say Abraham, I mean Moses. It's just... just work with me. They're all just bouncing around in my head and I just grab whatever comes up. So, so Moses comes down and he breaks these tablets which are symbolic of the covenant relationship between Israel and Yahweh and he comes back to God and God says, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses says, don't kill them. Moses. Moses says, don't kill them. If you kill them, the nations around them will say, ha, Yahweh brought them out of Egypt, but he couldn't deliver on his promises, so he just killed them. And so God, according to his sovereign plan, listens to the, uh, the intercessory work of Moses and says, okay, I won't kill him, but I'm not going with you. I'm not going to go with you into the promised land. From the time they've left Egypt, they've been led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And God says to Moses, you guys can go. I'll send my angel but I'm not going to go with you. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud is going to stay. I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, don't send us. And so God, again, relents and says, okay, I will go with you. And this whole time, you see Moses is going outside the camp. And he sets up this tent of meeting outside the camp. The Israelites are back here. Moses goes out here to talk to God. And when he goes out to the tent of meeting, the pillar of fire comes down on the tent and he's talking to Moses face to face. And it says in uh, Exodus 33 that when Moses does that, 
Everybody comes out to the opening of their tent and they watch Moses as he's out there talking to God. And so this is a separation. The Israelites are out here, over here, and Moses and Yahweh over here. There's a separation between them. And God says, I'm going to go with you. And if I go with you, you have to be holy. And so in, the, in Exodus, it describes this tent of meeting and the tabernacle and all the things that we've spent time when we went through the, the book of Exodus describing this, this special place where God comes to meet. And the book closes, Exodus closes with the glory of God coming down and filling this place so that no one could come in, not even Moses could come in. But it never says where is that tent to be constructed. It says Moses constructed it, but it didn't say where he put it. Is it outside the camp or is it inside the camp? We don't find out where he builds it until you get to Exodus, Leviticus, the beginning of Numbers. Numbers opens up with this very boring section. And you might be inclined to skip through it. And yes, I'm doing Leviticus 20, but I'm in Numbers. Deal with it. I'm a systematic theologian. I can't help but go all over the text. So here is the description of the camp. And it has the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the center of the camp. And the priests and the Levites are performing a protective duty around the tabernacle. And the rest of the Israelites by their tribes, are centered around. So that God, in His grace and His mercy, says, I'm going to be in the middle of the people. I'm going to be right smack in the middle, and every morning you get up, you don't have to look way out there to where Moses has gone to talk to Yahweh, but Yahweh is going to be in the middle of the camp. But in order for that to happen... You must be holy. And so between Exodus 34 and Numbers chapter 2, you have the book of Leviticus, which over again says, I, Yahweh, am a holy God, therefore be ye holy. And so as we go through all of the the rituals and the diets and the sacrifices and the instructions for sexual activity, all of these instructions are in the context of Yahweh is in the middle of the camp. His presence is there in your midst. Look at Leviticus 16. Leviticus. Right in the middle of the book is the Day of Atonement when the sins of the people are atoned for. Leviticus 16, 16. Thus, 1615. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions all their sins. The Day of Atonement is designed to wipe those away. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. 
God says, yes, I will go with you. And not only will I go with you, but I will dwell in your midst. But here's the book of Leviticus. Here's the instructions of the holiness code. And it's because I am in the middle of you. And you need this constant reminder that here's the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud right in the middle of you. That's one reminder. And I'll give you more reminders that God is a holy God and he is in your midst. I had a professor in uh, college who taught preaching. And he said, when you're preaching, you have to stay out of the bedroom and you have to stay out of the bathroom. That was his instructions to us college boys in our preaching. Stay out of the bedroom, stay out of the bathroom. Now, I don't remember if he meant with the stories we tell, the jokes we tell, or the content of our sermons. I don't remember that part of it. But frankly, Leviticus 20 just breaks all of those rules. Okay, so, Professor Warren, I'm sorry. um, But I'm sure you're aware that Leviticus 20 is in the Bible, so you must have meant something different. When we get to... I'm still getting used to these, so I'm sorry for the distraction. Um, On and off, on and off. Um, When we get to... Leviticus 18 has a whole bunch of prohibitions. Don't have sex with this person. Don't have sex with this person. Don't have sex with this person. It goes all the way through 18. And then 19 is a retelling of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, with a bunch of other stuff thrown in. Every single one of the Ten Commandments is found in Leviticus 19, except for do not commit adultery. And I think that's because in 18, it greatly expands that prohibition, no adultery, no unauthorized sexual activity. And that's expanded in 18. You come into 19, the other nine are repeated. And then when we get to chapter 20, all of the prohibitions in chapter 18 are repeated in chapter 20. The order is switched around. In fact, they're almost inverted. Some of the stuff that happens at the end of 18 is at the beginning of 20 and so on. And I'm not really sure what the rationale for that is. I didn't have a chance to talk to Moses about it which would be especially dangerous because the passage prohibits necromancy, so I I just couldn't do that. Um, But it's very interesting to me that it's repeated. And I thought, well, gee, Pastor Tim already preached on chapter 18, so I must have, you know, a pretty easy job. You know, just, just look it up online and you can just do 18 and 20, which you can do that. But there's a very distinctive difference in chapter 20. Chapter 18 lists one punishment. It's a vague punishment. You will be cut off from your people. Chapter 19 lists only two specific punishments. One of them is cut off, and one of them is you need to offer a sacrifice. When we get to chapter 20, every single prohibition is followed up with some kind of punishment. And many of them are capital punishments. These are are high crimes. These are heinous crimes. Capital punishment is the prescription for that. Why? Why list them all and then list them again, only this time with punishments? I'm not sure. Anytime you propose a reason that the writer of Scripture had for the way he wrote it, you're really working with conjecture, implications. But as I look at the flow of the text, 
Here are these prohibitions. Here's a repetition of the Decalogue, which is a sign of the covenant with Yahweh's people. Reminder to be holy. And holiness is not just niceness. Holiness is not just some vague thing that we aspire to. Holiness is the character of God. And if it is genuine holiness, it cannot be violated. If holiness means anything, if it's to be what it really is, then a violation of that must come with a stiff penalty. This kind of goes to our doctrine of hell. Hell makes us uncomfortable. Frankly, in chapter 20, it talks a lot about stoning as capital punishment. That makes us uncomfortable. Crude people do that. Muslims do that in Afghanistan. Surely, Yahweh wouldn't require death by stoning. Surely, Yahweh would not send people to hell. But if you remove the punishment, if you say that there is no consequence for violating the holiness of God, then he ceases to be a holy God. And while it may make us uncomfortable to say, no, no more stoning, it might make us comfortable to say, you know, hell, it's a concept, it's a euphemism, it's something else other than what the scripture says it is, then your God ceases to be a holy God. He's an idol. He's a false God. He's not the God that's described in Scripture. And so I think that helps us understand why we have these, these prohibitions repeated, but then the penalty is listed. And we've already encountered the holiness of God in Leviticus when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, offered strange fire, unauthorized incense to God, and lightning came from God and killed them both as a reminder that I am Yahweh, your holy God, and I will be regarded as holy. And what I prescribe for my worship will be followed. And if you don't, there are consequences. Now let me put this in a different context. Often, in this country, we will read in the papers about somebody who did something horrible. Raped some woman dismembered her body, tried to hide the crime. He was caught, he was found out, and he gets five years in prison. Another individual runs over a police officer with his very expensive sports car, kills the police officer, and he's living in luxury in Singapore, last I heard. And we think... How can there be no justice? How can there be no punishment? Because the punishment is indicative of the violation. If the crime is heinous and awful, then we expect a comparable, just sentence. And so when we look in the Old Testament and we see the wrath of God breaking out against people for a violation of His holiness the punishment that comes with that is commensurate with the violation of God's holiness. 
If you belittle the consequence, you belittle the crime. And so as we read through Leviticus 20, I want you to keep those things in mind. Almost all of the prohibitions in chapter 18 are repeated in chapter 20. There are a couple that are additional, and I'll point those out. Let me ask you, show of hands, and I do this all the time in my classes, so but this is a bigger class than I usually have. So you've got to raise your hands up really high. If your passport country still practices the death penalty, maybe in some state, maybe not the whole country, but if your country, your passport country, practices the death penalty, raise your hand. Okay, hands down. In those countries where you practice the death penalty, how many of your countries practice the death penalty for something besides murder? Raise your hand. Okay. If your passport country is China, that would be one. They execute people for besides. But most of us, we're used to thinking that murder, that's the capital crime. And everything else is below that. And yet, as we go through chapter 20, there are a lot of things for which death is a sentence. And that might feel uncomfortable for us because we've been acclimated to the heinousness of crimes in the context of our community, not in the context of our holy God. We say the wages of sin is death. We say that, right? But Leviticus 20 makes it far more graphic. Talking about physical death, certainly. But physical death is very much connected, is it not? And it's far more graphic for us to see that physical connection between the violation of God's holiness and physical death. So when we think about the consequences for our sins, Leviticus 20 especially reminds us of how the violation of God's holiness will beget the wrath of God. There will be punishment for sin. It doesn't just make God sad. It makes him angry. And there are consequences for a violation of that holiness. Leviticus 20, verse 2 Actually, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, they all start out with, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is from God. This is God's revelation. We can skip over that, but we must not forget that, that this is God's prescription. Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the stranger who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, one of the false gods in the land, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And 
if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut him off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. This is the last prohibition of chapter 18. It's the first one in chapter 20. Molech. Who is Molech? This is from Martin Luther describing what he found about Molech in the Jewish writings. The Holy Scripture often mentions Molech, as does Lyra, another historian. And the commentaries of the Jews say it was an idol made of copper and brass, like a man holding his hands before him, wherein they put fiery coals. When the image was thus made very hot, a father approached and made an offering to the idol and took his child and thrust him into the glittering hands of the idol, whereby the child was consumed and burned to death. Meantime, they made loud noise with timbrels and cymbals and horns so that the parents could not hear the pitiful crying of the child. If anyone offers his child to Molech, I will set my face against him. He shall surely be put to death. I'm so glad people don't sacrifice their babies to gods anymore. Or don't they? Maybe not a red-hot metal image, but in a sterile surgical suite. Maybe not to Molech, but to career or a love or reputation or simply a hatred of children. Cut off is a frequent punishment that's listed in this chapter. It's related to the notion of the formation of a covenant. It's the same word, but it's the negation. So you have you form the covenant by cutting, and sometimes it's a sacrifice. Remember um, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he cut the animals in two. That's related to the idea of forming a covenant. This being cut off is a negation of the covenant. You, you are being removed from a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And it spells it out later where you're removed from the presence of the people of Israel as well. It's a form of excommunication. It's a very serious consequence. Usually, or not usually, but frequently, it is talking about a crime or a sin that might not be easily detected. God knows about it, but the rest of the Israelites may not. And God promises you will be cut off. Here, the penalty is given to somebody who gets away with it because the rest of the people are afraid to do anything about it. And God says you'll still face the consequences. Verses 6 and 27 are the only crimes that are not listed in chapter 18. And they're kind of odd. And they come at the, at the beginning of these prohibitions, right after Molech, and then at the very end. It's the very last verse of the chapter. Verse 6, If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person. Instead of causing my face to shine on them, I'm going to set my face against them and cut him off from among his people. So here... It's if somebody goes to a necromancer. A necromancer is somebody who tries to do divination by reaching out to the dead. A spiritist, a medium. 
So you're in trouble if you go to one of these. And then all the way down at the end of the chapter, verse 27. A man or a woman who themselves are a medium or a necromancer, somebody who does divination from the dead, shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So the first one says you'll be cut off from your people if you go to these people. If you yourself are a necromancer, you must be killed. What's going on here? Again, I'm not sure. But what people are going for when they go to a necromancer, when they go to a medium or a spiritist, what they're trying to find out is supernatural knowledge. They're trying to seek additional information. The very first temptation of Satan to Eve was you don't have all the information. You eat of this tree, you'll receive knowledge. And we too are often dissatisfied with the revelation that God has given to us. We want to get more. We want more information. But Yahweh told his people, you cannot go to them. You cannot seek this additional information. Whether it's true or not is not the issue. I think it's all a sham, but that's not relevant here. The, the, the relevant point is, are you satisfied with the revelation that has been given to you? At the very end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says that the secret things belong to Yahweh. But we will obey this law. So in other words, God knows more than we know. He reveals to us the things we need to know. And we're satisfied with that. And if you refuse to be satisfied with that and go to seek additional knowledge about the future, about your relatives or whatever that is beyond my revelation, if you're going to those who seek the dead, the penalty is you will be cut off from the people. And if you yourself are a necromancer, the penalty for you is death. After the prohibition of necromancers, of seeking that supernatural knowledge, verses 7 and 8, repeat the holiness code very appropriately here. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you or who makes you holy. This is also repeated toward the end of the passage in verses 22 to 26, and we might get there. Anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood shall be upon him. God has given you life by means of your parents. They are the source of your existence, and for that reason alone, you should respect them and honor them and not curse them. And if you do, the penalty is that your blood will be upon you. What does that mean? Later on, it's specifically prescribed that it's death by stoning. In fact, in another place, it talks about the parents being able to take a rebellious and stubborn child to the elders and say that this child is rebellious and stubborn and they will stone that child. His blood shall be upon him. To be quite graphic, 
If you're killed by stoning, you will bleed. You will bleed a lot. Your body will be crushed. Your head will be wounded. You'll be bleeding profusely. And it's the community that surrounds you that participates in the stoning. Everybody is reminded, not just the officials, not just the the warden at the prison, but everyone in the community is reminded that this person has violated the holiness code. This person has disregarded the presence of Yahweh in our midst. This person has disregarded the holiness of Yahweh. And every person who is throwing the stone is reminded that there is a penalty for the violation of that holiness. And his blood shall be on his head. Not on the people's hands. It's not a beheading. It's not a strangulation. It's not a lethal injection. It is stoning. And the blood remains on that person's head. They're killed by the stones and they're left under a pile of rocks as their burial. It's graphic. Makes us uncomfortable. But this is the word that came from Yahweh to Moses to help the people understand what it means when he says, I am a holy God, and if you violate my holiness, there is death. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Marriage is sacred, and sex is reserved for marriage. We make an awful lot of, not we, but the world, makes an awful lot of movies celebrating adultery. Celebrating the violation of God's holy standard for marriage. It's such a theme that we talk about it as romance. It's really not. It's a violation of God's holy standard for one man, one woman, shall become one flesh. And be fruitful and multiply. That's God's beautiful design. And we have taken it and we've thrown it in the mud and we've celebrated it instead of seeing it like God sees it as a violation of his holiness, which is worthy of the death penalty. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. He has humiliated his father. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That phrase again. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. Remember Judah and Tamar? If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. Here and in two other places, the NIV unfortunately translates takes, which is the actual Hebrew word, as marries. Um, but there's no sense in this context where this is a marriage, some kind of officially recognized thing. It is, it's an abomination. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity, and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. Here we switch from death by burning to, or death by stoning to death by burning. 
not much of an improvement. There's no formal ceremony here envisioned for this incestuous relationship. In chapter 18, the parallel passage, it makes it clear when it says in verse 17, do not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. Again, capital punishment. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Hopefully, these verses are appalling to you. You've been benefiting from the Judeo-Christian ethic that's been in our parts of the world for a long time so that bestiality and incest are reprehensible, beyond the pale. But it's not always been that way, and in fact, it's increasingly not becoming that way. In fact, there was a, uh, an Australian philosopher who is an honored guy, but he says that bestiality is fine. If we're all animals anyways, the only thing you need is the consent of the animal. That's where we are. So this is not too far beyond the pale for the world in which we live. And those of you who work in the field of sex addictions probably could tell us some pretty gruesome tales. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness and sees his nakedness, she sees his nakedness, it's a disgrace. They shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. And here is where cut off is defined in the context of the community. You are rejected from the community. You are excommunicated from the community. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among the people. This is where I should say I'm out of time. I can't explain this first, but I'm not going to do that because that would be the chicken way out. What's going on here? Very simply, first of all, the prohibition is don't do these things because nations that I am vomiting out of the land have done these things. So what's going on? There's nothing else indicated in the text. It's a husband and wife. They happen to have sex during the woman's period. Why should they die for that? Why should they be cut off from their people for that? The woman's cycle and menstruation and fertility has always been powerful and not very well understood in the world. In fact, it wasn't until 1950 that we invented the pill to prevent pregnancy. Up until that time, we weren't sure how the whole thing worked. It's been surrounded by magic. And if you're in a fertility cult that celebrates the fertility and the fertility cycle, then you probably have an idea that maybe we can manipulate the power of the gods by involving in sexual activity during this very mysterious time. And God says, no, no, this is not a mysterious power to be manipulated. This is something that needs to be reserved and set aside as something that is sacred, but not to be manipulated for my power. In fact, a woman is off limits during her period for a lot of different reasons. And quite frankly, if you read the Old Testament and you think about all the restrictions that are placed on a woman, it's really a break for her. Everything she touches becomes unclean. She can't prepare meals because the meals she prepares will become unclean. Half the congregation here is thinking right now. <laughs> it seems out of place to talk about these things in church. That's why my professor said, don't go in the bedroom, don't go in the bathroom. But God made us the way we are, did he not? 
He knows how we work. He knows how our bodies function. And frankly, I'm afraid that if we don't talk about these things in church, we get the idea that God is just concerned about the never-never-land spiritual stuff, but the actual parts of my physical body, he, he doesn't want to know about. He made them. In fact, he put this stuff in the canon. It's in there. So let's think about it in terms of our God who knows who we are. There's a whole bunch of other prohibitions here about all kinds of different sexual um, relationships. Don't do them. And then at the end, but I have said to you, you should, this is verse, let's go to 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh, your God, who has separated you, made you holy from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. We just got done talking about prohibited sexual relationships, death by stoning, and now he's talking about Tuesday's menu. What are you allowed to eat? You're like, what is going on here? Here he's coming again to another reminder that God has given them to be holy. Every time you put something in your mouth, which for most of us is at least once a day, you have to think, is this kosher? Does this represent the holiness of God? Does this represent the reminder that God has given to me that I can't eat that, but I can eat this? Pig, I can't eat. Chicken, I can eat. Why? It's just a reminder that God is holy. And he says, don't forget it. You shall be holy to me, for I am Yahweh, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Peter did not miss this in the Old Testament. And he repeats in his letter, Be ye holy, for I am holy. How many of us are holy in and of ourselves? Maybe you haven't had sex with your aunt or your pet, but is that the bar? Is that what's going on here? Are we saying anything beyond that? You're fine? No. No, God is saying that these are especially heinous. It's death by stoning for these things. But his holiness is much broader than that. And that's why there's a whole sacrificial system that's coming up next, talking about the Levitical system and the priests. None of us are holy. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We are under the wrath of God. What's our hope? Our hope is that the blood of Jesus Christ is on our heads. His own blood shall be upon him. That was the curse. But in the New Testament, Jesus Christ's blood has been placed upon us. And instead of bringing judgment, it brings forgiveness. It brings reconciliation because he was the perfect sacrifice. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.